great it is to be with you this morning and how much I've enjoyed that time of worship. Thank you for your leadership and, and the musicians who accompanied. What a beautiful, uh, beautiful expression of praise that has lifted my soul today. And I'm grateful. I'm also grateful. I uh, appreciate uh, Luke's kind words, words of your pastor, and also the kindness that uh, he and his wife have shown uh, to me and to my family. I know that uh, they have been praying. Of course, this past year for my life, I know that they have had you praying some as well. And he, uh, we had a lot of folks praying. In fact, I, I went home at one point from a uh, preaching appointment that I had somewhere, and the church had gathered around me uh, yet again to pray for her as uh, she was uh, battling cancer. Uh, I told her, you're bound to be the most prayed for woman in the state of Kentucky. And that's just the way I wanted it. And how thankful I was for those prayers. And they have been effective. And she is well today. And how thankful I am. But uh, your pastor called really on a regular basis just to check on us. Uh, and uh, I just uh, appreciate so much his, his genuine concern. And I appreciate very much uh, the fact that uh, he is serving here with you and you're serving with him. And I know that uh, the Lord is doing good things in your midst for his name's sake. Uh, I want to express uh, a few of those things to you today just uh, before we turn our attention to God's word so that, that you might know uh, the reach that you are having even beyond this community where you're faithfully sharing the gospel. Uh, the gospel is going out uh, obviously from this pulpit and from this church family. Uh, but uh, through your generosity, uh, giving through the corporate program, part of the, the missions ministry of this church is supported by your offerings. Not only are you doing good work here supporting the ministry, but, uh, but a part of uh, that uh, contribution, when you put your tithes and offerings in the offering plate, goes to the corporate program to do good work across this country and around the world. In fact, we had 12,000 teenagers uh, who were camped this summer, and uh, they heard the gospel. Almost 800 of them responded in faith to the Lord Jesus. Uh, you paid for those camps to take place, uh, you and 2,400 other churches in Kentucky, and, and how thankful we are. You're doing good work on college campuses. You have campus missionaries on our college and university campuses across the state. And uh, we are thankful for the work that they did this past year. So over 300 students come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, you are supporting disaster relief ministry taking place uh, wherever a need occurs uh, in Kentucky, North America, even around the world. You have folks in West Africa most recently. Uh, and uh, they're giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, meeting very real pressing physical needs, but also sharing the gospel. Uh, we have also been blessed uh, to see uh, right now about uh, 4,600 missionaries serving in 180 countries of the world uh, through uh, our partnership with uh, 45,000 churches across the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, we are able to see a lot of folks uh, being reached. Uh, Luke, one of our ladies is having uh, a little difficulty there in the back. She's being tended to there. Uh, thank you for helping her out. 
we are very grateful for the work of those missionaries. In fact, this past year, uh, they saw 300,000 new believers baptized come to faith. Uh, over 180 countries of the world where they're working. Many of those places, they're sharing the gospel where the gospel would not be heard if they weren't there. So thank you for doing that. Over 23,000 new churches planted uh, through the work of those missionaries. And all of that is, is, is your work. And so we're able to celebrate today all that God is doing uh, through uh, Jeffstown Baptist Church. We're going to turn our attention this morning to a passage of Scripture that really gets to the heart of, of uh, what we are to be about. I love the way the worship time was couched for us this morning as we undertook our eternal vocation uh, and offering praise and glory to our Lord. Uh, we find uh, the reason that we, we've been called to that end. Uh, we find the worthiness of the one whom we are praising. Describe for us in Colossians 1. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians 1. We'll begin reading verse 13, and we'll read down several verses here, but uh, if you're familiar with the book of Colossians, let me set this up uh, just a bit for us as, as you turn to Colossians 1. If you're familiar with the book of Colossians, then uh, you might know that Paul has a lot to say about Jesus uh, in uh, the brief letter that he wrote to the Colossian believers. In fact, if you were to take your Bible and an pen and mark every occurrence of the word Jesus, every occurrence of the word Lord, and every occurrence of the word Christ in the 95 verses of the book of Colossians, you would find that there are 92 references to the combination of those words, Jesus, Christ, and Lord. 92 references in 95 verses. Paul has a lot to say about Jesus uh, in uh, this book, but it's interesting that he almost comes to an early climax as he's celebrating who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and why Jesus the Christ is deserving of glory here in chapter 1. We can with in verse 13. Paul says, he, he's speaking now about the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, by whom? By Jesus. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him, through Jesus, and for Him, for Jesus. Now I'm just going to substitute in the remaining verses that I'll read, where we find a pronoun referring to Jesus, I'm just going to use uh, Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself, to God's self, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled, 
in Jesus' body and flesh by Jesus' death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Jesus. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let me stop there for now. You might want to keep your Bible open because we'll be looking at some of these verses with a little more uh, detail. As we uh, learn from this passage of Scripture, there's a very simple question that I want us to ask together. Would you ask this question with me? How can I ensure that Jesus has his rightful place in my life? How can I ensure, how can you ensure, how can we ensure that in our lives Jesus has his rightful place? I believe that's a question that matters to you. Uh, you're here. And uh, as I mentioned, the folks at Super Saturday yesterday, who gave up Saturday, and I don't know if your members did, uh, for, for training and equipping to be more effective in ministry, uh, today's another beautiful day. And you had options. But you're here. You're here because you want to honor the Lord with your life. You want to do what pleases Him. And so I'm going to make the assumption that this question does matter to you. That you want to know that Jesus has His rightful place in your life. And you are honoring Him with your life the way He deserves to be honored, the way He demands to be honored. And so as we ask this question together, there are a couple of responses that I think we can glean from uh, these verses that we've read in Colossians 1. And here's the first response that I think just comes becomes uh, uh, crystal clear as we look at these verses. How can I be sure Jesus has his rightful place in life? You want to be sure Jesus has his rightful place in your life and begin by seeing the place that he has in the heart of God the Father. Begin by seeing the place that Jesus has in the heart of God the Father. What place does he have? Well, Paul makes reference to it in the very first verse we read, verse 13. Let's reread that verse. Paul says, He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, now listen to this next phrase, into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The kingdom of His beloved Son. If we were to read a, a literal translation of that phrase from the Greek text, of course Paul was originally written in Greek, and, and just translate it literally, word for word, it would read, The kingdom of the Son of His love. The kingdom of the Son of His love. God has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. One author says that what Paul's trying to communicate here is that Jesus is the supreme object of the Father's love. Jesus is the Son of His love. He's the supreme object of the Father's love. That is to say, you and I were able to ask God the Father a question this morning. The question that we wanted to ask Him was... Father, who do you love most? Uh, what do you love most out of everything that is? And of course, everything that is 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 from you. What, who do you love most? Uh, God the Father would look to His Son Jesus, and He would say, "I love my Son Jesus more than anyone, more than anything else." Now that's true, and we certainly believe it is true because God's word is true. But 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 if that's true, I have another question today. And the question is why? Why? And now don't misunderstand the question. It will be easy to wait. When you hear that question, you may be thinking, I'm asking why the Father would love His Son more than anyone or anything else. But I, I, I get that question. 
That's not the question I'm asking, but if it were, that, that would be an easy answer. Uh, you, you moms, you dads, I mean, you, you, you understand this, right? Uh, I'm a father, and, 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 and I, I get that question. A lot of good-looking kids here this morning. It's good to see so many young families here in worship, and it's beautiful. So I'm sure if I got to know these kids, uh, I'd love them all. But if you ask me about the ones I love the most, or if you ask me about who I love the most, you know, apart from my Lord and my bride, I, I'm going to begin to tell you about a, a 16-year-old boy who I find myself looking up to. <laughs> my son Daniel has, has passed me up in height, uh, about 6'4 now. Uh, he's, he's not very big around. He's just growing up and not out. Uh, he, he likes to walk by me and look down at me. You know, he, he doesn't, he doesn't, unless he's got his cowboy boots on, he doesn't have much downward glaze, but he's got a little bit, just enough to remind me that he's being taught. And now the other day he tried dead, and I, I just saw so I had enough of it. And I said, boy, you need to know something. I can fold you over. <laughs> and then I won't be looking up at you and you won't be looking down at me. But I love that boy. If you ask me who I love the most, I'd start telling you about this this 15-year-old girl, his little sister, Anna. She's rivaling the beauty of her mother. And I love her. And then I would tell you about this little six-year-old girl about to turn seven who doesn't look anything like her family. Uh, our daughter, Kai, came to us from an orphanage in China. If you're familiar with uh, China and their one-child policy that, that you know that uh, that uh, most baby girls there, because in uh, the tradition of their country, families want a son, and so maybe most baby girls there are, are either uh, abandoned at birth or aborted before birth. In fact, China leads the world in, in abortions, uh, second on the list is Russia. Can you guess who's third? We are. Where we kill 3,000 unborn babies every single day in this country. Now that's a tragedy. I, I can't even begin to get my mind around. But, but thankfully, for whatever reason, a young mother in China chose not to abort her baby girl but she did abandon her. I was found just after she'd been born. She had her go before the time she was in a box behind a newspaper stand. She was then taken to an orphanage, and it was from there that the Lord gave her to us when she was 10 months old. And she has brought such joy into our lives. And I love her. It, the question is why mom's down in you. That's, that's a no-brainer, right? I mean, the Bible says Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. It makes sense that the Father would love his son, Jesus, more than anyone or anything else. That's not my question why. So let's get to it. What is the question why? My question why is if it's true that the Father loves the son, Jesus, more than anyone, more than anything else, and we know it is, why did he plan for him what he planned for him? Why? Afraid? Rejection? Why a public being? Why a crown of thorns? Why a Roman cross? 
Why fear? Why suffering? Why the cruel, torturous death? I mean, I think of a passion like Isaiah 53. Can we really say the Father loves His Son when, when hundreds of years before uh, he, he sends Him to earth to be born a child, He has planned for Him what the prophet Isaiah says He has planned for Him? Uh, let me just pull some phrases from Isaiah 53 to remind you of what was planned for the Father's Son even before, well, before He came to earth and before the foundations of the earth were laid. The prophet says He will be stricken by God, smitten by Him, afflicted, pierced uh, for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He will be punished. He will be wounded. He will bear the iniquity of us all. He will be oppressed. He will be led to the slaughter. He would suffer judgment. He would have no descendants. He would be cut off from the land of the living. He would be assigned a grave with the wicked. to verse 18. There Paul is speaking of Jesus and he says that he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. Now notice especially this last phrase. That in everything he might be preeminent. The beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That is to say that in everything he might have first place. This is how the plan of the Father works for His Son. Indeed, indeed, He crushed Him. Indeed, He caused Him to suffer. But the pathway of suffering that the Father had planned for His Son was just that. It was a pathway, not a destination. The destination was glory. Glory. The Son walked a pathway of suffering for you and for me. Because the Father who loved the Son desires that the Son be loved. That He be exalted, that He be praised. And so the Father, you see, makes of the Son the world's all-time greatest hero. By allowing Him to suffer and die in our place. Uh, I grew up over in the southeastern part of the state in the mountains, in fact, right on the state line. But it was a coal mining country and a lot of miners in our family. There was a song they used to play a lot uh, when I was growing up on the radio. I heard it again the other day and it it sort of took me back. Uh, If you remember the song Big John, the old country classic Big John. Uh, for those of you who haven't, uh, Big John, the song about, about a coal miner who's a mountain of a man, and he's working in the deep mines, and that means that those mines, they tunnel back into the ground. And, and one day, the mine where he was working, the other miners were working, began to cave in. The tunnel was coming down on them. And, and Big John, this mountain of a man, 
reaches up and he grabs hold of the support beam, the timber that had been set in place uh, to, to, to hold up the mine shaft. And, and, he, and he holds it in place, and the other miners are able to escape. 20-minute scramble from a would-be grave, and now there's only one left down there to stay. <laughs> you got the tune even. I mean, I'm impressed. Big John. Well, those of you who have the tune, you remember the song. It doesn't turn out so well for Big John. The other miners uh, apparently grab their equipment. They're about to go back and rescue the one who rescued them. But they're too late. Mine collapses. And Big John dies. But he dies a hero. Saving 20 men in his death. According to the Father's plan. Jesus came and he lived among us. And he died for us. He didn't die to save 20 men. He didn't die to save 200. And he didn't die to save 2,000 or 200,000. In fact, according to scripture, Jesus, the Lamb of glory, laid down his life. That men and women and boys and girls from every tongue, tribe, and nation of the world would be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And then they would gather around the throne of the risen Savior and forever will be there crying out, He's my hero. He gave his life for me. He willingly suffered and surrendered himself that the price of my sin might be paid. And that I might be able to enjoy life eternally in his kingdom. And because of that, he's worthy of my praise. He's worthy of my living. And if need be my dying. How can I be sure Jesus has his right place in my life? You see the place he has in the heart of the Father? Father wanted his son to receive that praise, that exaltation, that glory forever. And he will. I'll be sure Jesus has his right place in my life. It's a great starting place. See the place he has in the heart of the Father. There's one more response. Uh, we must see to this question. Paul highlights it uh, near the end of the chapter. And it is this. You want to be sure Jesus has his right place in your life. Know that you must set him in place over every desire of your heart. See the place he has in the heart of the Father and then set in place over every desire of your heart. Paul captures the worthiness of Christ in this regard. Beginning now in verse 21. Paul says, You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless. And above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul talks in those verses about this, this change of position that we who are in Christ have been given. I mean, there, there was a time when, as Paul says in verse 21, you were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That is to say, we were separated from God. We were considered enemies of God because we had rebelled against God and our eternal destination was to be separated from God in hell. And then comes Jesus. 
a man from Galilee, the Son of God, who had lived a life free of sin and became the perfect and all-sufficient sacrifice for you and for me. And those who have trusted in Christ are no longer alienated and hostile and doing evil deeds. You have been reconciled. You are presented holy and blameless and above reproach. Doesn't the one who has changed your eternal destination from hell to the kingdom of heaven, doesn't he deserve to be set in place over every other desire of your heart? Well, indeed he does. But he doesn't just deserve it. Hear me now. He demands it. And in fact, he'll settle for no other place. And that's why Paul, in a sense, qualifies this when he says, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. If you continue in the faith, Paul is not saying that, well, you know, you, you've earned your salvation, you have to keep earning it. No, Paul is saying that, uh, that the fact of your faith, if it is genuine, if it is true, if truly you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and born again, that's going to be evident in your life of faith. And you will continue, you will persevere in that faith. You will continue to hope in Christ. You will continue to hope in the gospel. You will continue to be stable and steadfast. You won't shift from that hope. Of course, part of what that means is that you as a person of faith will be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus. In the simplest terms, when Paul was was writing in the Roman church about how to be saved. Remember how he put it in chapter 10? He says, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God is raised from the dead, you will be saved. Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And of course that that captures the fact that he he laid down his life willingly, that that he died for our sins and that he was uh, raised again. And and, and the word Paul uses for believing in that is stuo in the Greek. It it doesn't just mean to know intellectually that that happened. It means you trust in that. That you trust in that that Jesus' death on the cross and that his resurrection was for you. And you you trust in that as a source of, of your pardon, your forgiveness, your acceptance before the Father. But, but remember, Paul begins that verse by saying, if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, God is raised from the dead. Confessing Jesus as Lord, well, that word Lord, curiosity. It's not just a title for Jesus. It, it literally means the master, the ruler. Uh, it's the one who's in charge, the one who's in control, the one who's calling the shots. Is he? Is he? Is he in charge of your life, in control of your life? Is he calling the shots? Have you acknowledged him as the Lord of your life? So that you have surrendered your life to him. And you are living as best you can as a faithful follower of Jesus as Lord. There was a time in my life when I really struggled with that. 
think my prayers during those days probably all sounded about the same. I laid my head on the pillow at night and I would confess the sins I committed that day. And they were the same sins I committed the day before. And the day before. And the day before. See, I knew God was smart, so I knew he was catching on to me. And so and so I, I would usually sort of expl- try to explain my way out of this and say, well, I know that's the same thing. That the, uh, but I, Lord, just be patient with me. Someday when I'm older and it's easier, someday I'll begin to live for you. Someday I'll, I'll stop doing the things I know you want me to do. And I'll start doing the things I know you want me to do. Someday, Lord, not, not now, but... But someday. And then there came a day when I realized how ridiculous bargaining on someday with God actually is. I was in the passenger seat front uh, of my brother's car, my older brother. He was driving. My younger brother was seated behind him, and my best friend was seated behind me. We were going fishing. It was a hot August day. We were bored. Middle of the day, we decided to go car fishing. Now you know you're bored when you're in car fishing, right? <laughs> uh, but, but here we set off, and, and we were on a stretch of the road nicknamed the Narrows down where in our part of the state, southeastern Kentucky, we crossed the border over in Tennessee and a little winding stretch of, of 25. Maybe some of you remember that route. Uh, my older brother was driving. He was driving, of course, the way all of us drove at the time, sort of up. More like we were on the Kentucky Speedway than, than, than the uh, highway. And he was just hanging those curves, the tires squalling, and just going too fast. And we came around this one particular curve, and there was a truck coming our way. It was one of those railroad working crew trucks. Maybe you've seen them. They, they can run on the tracks or on the highway. They have a big metal rig in front of them. And the problem was, uh, we were on his side of the road. <laughs> It happened so fast, I didn't have time to yell at my brother and say, get back on your side of the road, you idiot. <laughs> Probably sort of the way it would come out. But, but I didn't have time to get that out. But I, I, knew, I knew he saw what was happening because he cut the wheel, but he was just going too fast. And so the car began to slide. And we ended up sliding sideways right in the path of that truck. And I can still in my mind hear the explosion of the metal and the glass that moment and the truck one sent us spinning off the front of that truck in fact we slammed into the rock wall back on our side of the road I immediately jumped out of the car and yelling for everyone else to get out I thought maybe the car would catch fire and no one moved I went around to the driver's side the older brother was laying unconscious with his head against the steering wheel Looking in the back seat, my younger brother unconscious, his head against that seat in front of me, and my friends down in the floorboard, sort of in a ball, moaning. I kept yelling, get out, get out. But they weren't responding. And there was a time there I thought both of my brothers were dead. But eventually my older brother, he, he began to sort of come to, he was in shock. But he was alive, and my younger brother wouldn't respond. Dragged him out of the back seat of that cutlass. And I held his head up off the pavement. And I begged God for his life. 
seemed like an eternity before an ambulance finally made it out that far. We took him and my friend away, a long way to a rescue squad. They came and picked up my older brother and myself. There's a couple of helicopter rides, University of Tennessee Hospital in Knoxville, emergency surgeries, list of injuries was long. There was uh, two ruptured spleens, a broken neck, a ruptured diaphragm, more cuts than you can imagine. Oh, but God was merciful. He answered my prayers. He spared all of our lives. Looking back on it, I knew God was merciful in another way as well. Book of Hebrews says the Lord disciplines those he loves. We were four young men bent on self-destruction. I mean, that wasn't our goal. We just thought we were indestructible, you know. And we were walking outside of the boundaries that God had set in place every day on a regular basis, ongoing, and making these empty promises. God did whatever he had to do for us for the taste of death to keep us from continuing down that road of destruction. It was on that day that my eyes were open to these empty promises. I said, Lord, don't break your promises for me. Today, I acknowledge you as the Lord of my life. 25 years passed. And you know what? Looking back at those 25 years, I've come to realize it's true. I've come to realize 1 John 5 3 is true. You remember that verse? It says, Those who love the Lord keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. I was thinking of it all wrong. Lord, you, your commands are a burden to me. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, there's things I want to do this fun I want to have. You, you, you're cramping my style here, Lord. That's not what he was doing. In fact, I, I can't imagine how my life could be more fun and exciting and filled with joy. It's been since the day I began to pursue Christ and follow the plan that he has for my life. Grateful to be here today and to be able to say thank you to a pastor and to a church family for uh, your prayers and for all that you're doing for the kingdom. But that's not the most important reason I come today. I come most importantly to commend Christ to you. He is worthy of your life. He deserves and demands to be set in place over every desire of your heart. And when you put him there, when you submit to his rightful place in your life, what you will find is that there is unspeakable joy in it. And hope. He is worthy of your living. He is worthy of your dying.